I'm Pat Nimmers, the lead pastor here at Sailorville and a rabid Iowa State Cyclone fan. And I've been reminded this morning in all my victories, Jesus is better. Amen? So I won't go on and on and on about that. But you know, it's been over 40 years since Oklahoma has been whipped like that by anybody. Oh, I just said I wouldn't go on and on about that. I'll tell you something else that took place about 40 years ago. The greatest rescue in modern times took place about 40 years ago in what was called Operation Thunderbolt. If you're a Jew, you celebrate the 4th of July differently than we do here in the States. Because in late June, Palestinians in 1976 kidnapped an Air France Airbus with 248 passengers on it and made their way to a friendly country of Uganda at the time with Idi Amin, that, you know, that dictator. He gave them sanction. They, were, they went to the airport in, in, in Entebbe. They siphoned off most of the people, but, but kept 94 Jews along with the, the flight crew. They, they sectioned the Jews off into a certain area of the airport, so you can imagine the fear that was going all the way through the nation of Israel, 2,500 miles away. The world was held in suspense as to what was going to happen. On July 4th, 1976, 100 Jewish commandos in transport planes came in stealthwise under the radar into the airport in Entebbe. They even dressed up as Ugandan soldier, uh, soldiers and took a jeep and made it look like a military Ugandan jeep, drove right up into the airport, attacked these, these commandos, attacked the airport, killed 45 Ugandan soldiers. All the bad guys got killed, rescued everyone with just a couple of deaths. It was amazing. They loaded up all these Jews onto the transport planes. They flew them back to Israel. And you could imagine just the incredible explosion of joy that was going on in Israel once that plane landed. And here's a picture of it. What celebration. Well, we've been studying the scripture in Genesis chapter 14 and a great rescue that took place as well, where Abram has set off after his nephew Lot. If you'll recall from, uh, from our study last week, you had these three, actually four very powerful kings to the east who were dominating the, the promised land, and five kings in the promised land con uh, consolidated and fought with the four kings that were off to the east. The four kings off to the east whipped the kings in the promised land, took the captives, took the booty, took the people, including Abraham's nephew, Lot, which precipitated Abraham's valiant response in going after the bad guys, chased them all the way up toward the Fertile Crescent, through the, uh, the area of Dan and near Damascus, and just put a beat down on them. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says he slaughtered them. He did it with his 300 commandos. And so you can imagine on their way back, as they made their way back from this 120-mile trip to the north, as they arced their way back and got to a little valley just south of, of modern-day Jerusalem, the scene doesn't focus on the crowds that met them, but surely they did. I mean, they virtually saved the entire land and all those little mini-state kingdoms. Rather, the passage of Scripture focuses on two kings, 
who come out to meet Abram. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And therein lies the question posed to you this morning. Are you with Sodom or Salem? Let's look at the text. Where we left off, Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17. After Abram's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most, of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram responded by giving him a tenth of everything. The Hebrew says, the top of the heap. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So, as Abraham makes his way back into, after defeating those kings, he comes to, he's met first by the king of Sodom. Just to, just to show you, this, is, this guy's down by the Dead Sea. He's traveled quite a ways because he's, he, they've all met together in the valley of Shava. And Shava is, is so close to modern-day Jerusalem, you'll just see right here. That's how close it is. It's virtually just to the north of Jerusalem. That's where these two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, met with Abram. We're not told why Sodom showed up. He would represent the five kings who got their heinies handed to him earlier. Except we could probably do a little sanctified imagination. I mean, he is the king where Lot lived. He has a vested interest. No doubt in Lot himself. Because when we get to chapter 19, we're going to find out in that whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing that Lot doesn't just live in Sodom. He's in the gates of Sodom. And if you resided in the gates of Sodom, that meant you were a very highly esteemed, probably a politician, possibly a judge. And I would argue that, that right now, Lot is already a very high commodity from Sodom. And the king of Sodom... It's interested in him. No doubt the king of Sodom also knows what motivated Abram to go after him to begin with. That is, after those kings. So, he probably represents the other five kings that were whipped, but we'll come back to him, all right? Verse 18 is where this mysterious figure comes virtually out of nowhere. It's Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Who is this guy? Now, some have postulated that it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. That is uh, uh, what theologians call a theophany, a theophany or Christophany more specifically. That is, a, uh, before Jesus took on flesh, he is God. He always has been God. Amen? Uh, so, he existed and he would show up and he does show up on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. So, some would argue this is just Jesus in a shadowy kind of form. 
I think you're wrong, but, you know, you're not going to go to hell or anything like that because you believe that, so rest assured. But there's reasons. The text actually helps us to that end. But it does identify who he is. He's a king. That's what it says. And he's from Salem, and that's virtually the same area as Jerusalem, archaeology, history, proven that for sure. And he's the priest of the Most High God, so he's both a king and he's a priest, which is a rare, rare commodity. The Jews knew nothing of king priest. So he's a king and he's a priest. And I'm going to take just for a little while, I'll go over to, to, if you want, we'll put the scripture up, but to Hebrews chapter 7, because Hebrews chapter 7 virtually exposits Genesis chapter 14. It actually interprets Genesis 14 for us, which is very nice when the Bible actually interprets the Bible, right? And that's what's going to happen here. So I want you to see this. Actually, beginning in the, first, the couple of verses before chapter 7, chapter 6, verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest Watch this, forever after the order of, <coughs> excuse me, Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter. Now we know what happened in that battle. He slaughtered him of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham, uh, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Now, this so far, he's just telling the story just the way it is in the narrative, the original narrative, that being Genesis 14. Now watch the exposition take place. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. You want to know what Melchizedek means? There it is. It means king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of what? So he is the righteousness, peace king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy. This is the basis by which some people believe that this was a Christophany, but you'll, the text will actually undermine that here in a moment. Having neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest Forever. So he interprets Melchizedek. His name means righteousness or king of, you know, it means righteousness or king of righteousness. And then Salem, where he's from, means peace. So he is righteousness and peace, reminding me of the, the psalmist who said, righteousness and peace kiss each other. So in Jesus, the righteousness of God and the peace of God kiss. They come together. In verse 3 of Hebrews here, Melchizedek just about comes out of nowhere, doesn't he? And that's, there's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. Now, make no mistake, Melchizedek was born. Melchizedek died. There just isn't any record of it. That's what makes him like or resembling Jesus. And by the way, the word resemble here, it, the Greek word is only, it only and always refers to two people. It never refers to one. You can't resemble yourself. That doesn't make any sense, does it? So when it says he doesn't have any genealogy, just say there's no record of it. That's the idea here. So Melchizedek, as Hebrews 7 tells us, is a picture of Jesus. Jesus being the reality of the picture. Now, we love our pictures, right? 
We love our pictures of our little ones. We love our pictures of our parents. Uh, but we don't take our pictures and then hug them and kiss them, or, unless we're really strange. They're pictures. The actual person is the reality. As, you know, some of you that uh, when you're, you're first pregnant for the first time, you love to post those first ultrasound pictures. You know, you go, okay, whatever. Melchizedek is the ultrasound. Jesus is the reality. Okay? Even the Levitical priesthood, the Jewish priesthood, flowed from Abraham. But Abraham, in this passage, pays tithes, tithes to Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. You know, as we've already mentioned, the top of the heap, the best of the spoils. And by the way, this is the reason, this is the reason why the writer of Hebrews is so enamored with uh, Melchizedek, he actually says, uh, it's beyond dispute that the, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Because back in the ancient times, if you paid a tithe to somebody, you were recognizing his superiority. So that's what's going on here. What's more, the Levitical priesthood required that you could prove your genealogy. If you were a part of the Jewish system, in fact, if you've read in, in Ezra, you, you'll see where the children of Israel are coming back from captivity, and there's a group of people who are actually in the bloodline of the priesthood, but they couldn't prove their lineage. Have you ever read that? And they're out because they couldn't prove it. But the forever order of Melchizedek doesn't have a human genealogy. And that's why he says he, in, in Hebrews 7, verse 3, he continues a priest forever. He doesn't have to wait his turn. The Levitical priesthood got 30 years and they were done. They retired. No retirement for Jesus. Amen? This is what really turns on the fact that later on in Hebrews 7, it tells us, therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him by faith. And here's why. Because he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this should send tingles down your spine. Jesus Christ lives always forever to make intercession for you. Listen to me. You don't live for Jesus. Jesus lives for you. That's the awesomeness of his priesthood. And this should just send pure joy into your hearts. Now, back to Melchizedek, and, as you, and if we go back to, um, uh, to Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes out, he blesses both Abram, he blesses God, he serves, he serves with bread and wine. Apparently, he, re, he served all the commandos, the 300 plus. He's like Jesus who didn't come to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life a what? A ransom for many, Right? And what's interesting here is Melchizedek identifies God in verse 19 in chapter 14 as possessor of heaven and earth. Thus, he, while he's blessing Abraham, he also wants Abraham to know, I want you, I want, I want you, listen, the, the only reason you got this victory is because of the possessor of heaven and earth. He's given you the victory. Verse 20, he has delivered your enemies into your hand. And what's Abraham's response? He worships. He gives the top of the heap, the best of the best. Remember, we're talking about two kings, the king of Sodom 
and the king of Salem. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. We don't know who the king of Sodom is. He has a name for sure. But he's up next. Look at verse 21 here. It says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He's terse. He's to the point. No congratulations. No thanks. No worship. No praise. No humility. Just give me these and you take that. What audacity this defeated king had before Abram. I mean, this guy's going to be able to resume his little his little kingdom because of what Abraham has done for him. Abraham has basically handed to him and the other kings what they originally wanted, or just not the way they wanted it. And yet he has the audacity to talk to Abraham like he's cutting a deal with him. By the way, he says, give me the persons. You see that there? Who do you think he's referring to? He wants Lot back. No doubt. I mean, this guy's got a lot of you-know-what. This is unbelievable. But there's also something here very critically and seriously worth noting, and please take it to heart. If you notice the text, the king of Sodom is not interested in the purse. He's interested in the people. If Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is a picture of Jesus, the king of Sodom is a picture of Satan. And listen to what I'm about to tell you. Satan doesn't care about your stuff any more than God does. Satan doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. That's who he wants. In that sense, he's no different than God. That's why there's an antichrist out there. They're so much like God, but they're not God. They don't want your stuff. Satan doesn't want your stuff. He wants you, and he has some of you right now. He has some of your minds, your belief systems. He has some of your morals, You can accumulate all kinds of stuff. And yes, it can be a distraction for sure because the love of money is all you know, the root of all kinds of evil, right? But in the end, he wants you. And the sad thing about it is that Lot doesn't seem to get it, does he? And really, again, this is pure speculation, but I think it's a 120-mile trek on, on the way back to the Valley of Shava. And thus... I think Abraham probably had a very similar conversation with Lot having rescued him that he had before Lot took the trek down to Sodom. Probably said, hey, look, do you want to come to Salem or Sodom? And we know what Lot wanted. We know what he did because, you know, the heart, the eyes love what the heart, you know, is on, right? He goes back to Sodom. That's where he resides. I mean, if it were not for 2 Peter... And that passage of scripture that he was righteous, we'd all just write him off as a, you know, as a rank unbeliever. But fittingly, Abraham responds to the king of Sodom, and you don't want to miss it. Look at verse 22. 
Abraham said to the king of, of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. So he sets this two-bit king straight. Abraham is not about to lose his trust in his greater king to become indebted to a lesser king. The land was his already. And you'll notice what he says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's using the language of Melchizedek. He's saying very humbly, I agree. God is the possessor and God is my deliverer. He says that more than subtly, which is really interesting because in, in doing this, by not taking the booty, Abram was violating the customs of the ancient times. He was deviating from the norm and taking some risk in so doing in the geopolitical world of that day. But Abraham was putting his stake down. He had chosen Salem over Sodom. And that's the question I want to put to you today. Who are you siding with today? I have two words for those of you who have put your stake down in Salem. Peace. And you've met the peace of God. You've, you've met God. You've met God at the cross where Jesus shed his blood and rose again. And you have peace with God. You are in Salem. Here's the first thing I want you to note. <clears throat> some of your greatest tests will come after victory and not before. Some of your greatest tests will come after victory, not before. This is after the great victory, and he's tested, well, will he take the booty? Very early on in my time here at Sailorville, things were going great. People were getting saved and baptized and joined the church, and one particular individual was really excited about it, and he took me out for lunch. And he was just going on and on about how excited he was about how things were going. And as we sat down, even before we ate, he slid four brand new $100 bills across the table at me. He said, I want you to have that. Something in my heart said, don't take that money. But I had 10 kids. Things were tight. I took it. A couple years later, that man got very angry with me. And he would leave the church. But before he did, he went through the line, took my hand, pulled me close to himself, and whispered in my ear these words, remember, I gave you And I was virtually sick to my stomach in the moment. Now, wait a minute. Not because of what he said. Because it was true. I'd failed the test. And as you look through Scripture and you examine your own life, follower of Jesus, living in Salem, some of your greatest tests will be after victory, not before. And you search the scriptures and you'll see men like David and Daniel 
and Elijah, Abraham, and others. Some failed, some succeeded. It doesn't matter. You will be tested, and some of you are failing as we speak. Come back to God. He'd listen. It's a test, but it's not intended to flunk you. Secondly, your first response after victory should be to worship, not to boast. Abraham never argued with Melchizedek over the point that this was God's doing. He was the possessor. He was his deliverer. And he acknowledged it and he exalted in the Lord. He worshiped. That's what he did. He didn't boast. I mean, whenever we have a great victory, we love to do the victory lap, right? We love to high five, do the chest bump. But God says, I am the Lord. I don't share my glory with anybody else. And Abraham's first response is to worship. That's what ours should be in our victories. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And then to you. You're either in Sodom or you're somewhere between Sodom and Salem, but you're not there. But maybe you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not, you don't have peace. You don't have, the, you don't have peace with God and so you have no peace of God You're still in Sodom. I have two words for you, and really for everyone, even for those of us who are there. You need a king who can mediate for you, not just rule over you. Melchizedek was both. He was a king and a priest. The Jewish priesthood knew nothing of this, but the order of Melchizedek did, and Jesus is your king and your priest. And he is a king. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. And one day he will crush all opposition. Daniel tells us his kingdom will come out of the sky like a massive boulder and obliterate every kingdom that ever opposed him. And the book of Revelation tells us in chapter 19, Jesus will come with a sword out of his mouth. He'll destroy his enemies and he'll set up his everlasting kingdom. He is our king. But how do you approach a king like that? Only if he's a priest as well. Only if he can mediate for you. And so he becomes like you. He becomes like me, yet without sin. And he becomes a compassionate priest. And he beckons you to come to him. Listen, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who is not only the king of kings, And Lord of lords, he is a compassionate priest who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what you're looking for, rest for your souls. He's not just the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. And that's what you need, right? And you need a king who can give you righteousness, not stuff. Let me tell you something. You can't take your stuff to hell any more than you can take it to heaven. 
And we've already said, Sodom's king, the greater, the lesser, call Satan what you will, doesn't care about, he doesn't care about your stuff, he wants you. But here's a better thing. Jesus, King Jesus doesn't just say, come to me, he says, receive from me, out of me. I don't just give you forgiveness, I give you my righteousness. And this is what Paul meant when he said, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is accordance with the law, but the righteousness which comes by God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can receive something greater than stuff. You can receive righteousness today by placing your faith in Jesus. But you got, get, you got to get rid of your own because all our righteousness are is what? They're filthy rags, right? Sodom's king can give you stuff. But only Salem's king can give you salvation, righteousness, and peace. Do you want it? Sodom or Salem? Let's pray. Our Father, with gratitude, we thank you so much for this time. We could open up your word and look at this great narrative. And thank you so much, Lord, for giving us that New Testament exposition of what was going on with Melchizedek. And indeed, he was a picture of Jesus. And we thank you for our great king, priest, Jesus. Not just ruling over us, but dwelling within us. Not just the one to whom we bow, but the one to whom we come and beckons us to do so. I pray for those in this room, Lord, who don't, don't know Jesus. They've never received his righteousness. Oh, they've prayed prayers and all these kind of things, but it's never been real. It's never been from their heart. They've never received the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ. And I pray right now, dear friend, if that's you, just humble your heart to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus from your heart right now. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Repent and turn to him. He'll take you. He himself said, he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Believe that and believe in him. And those of you who are in Salem, you have peace. You've trusted Jesus. Be warned. Those greatest tests more often come after victories than not before. And may our first response in victory not be to boast, but to worship the one to whom all glory belongs and doesn't share it with anyone else. God, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.